Mental health challenges are often kept in the closet or even swept under the rug. We know they can affect anyone, from adults to children, and the struggle is real. Join us as we talk about relevant topics with mental health experts. Welcome to Equip Online, a place for hope and help. Welcome to Equip Online. This week, we're going to look at understanding the root of addiction. I'm Brian, and my co-host today is Wally. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this conversation, Brian. Yeah, me too. Uh, today's guest is Adam Bertosh. Adam is a marriage and family therapist and chemical dependency counselor at On The Men Counseling in the Woodlands, so right here locally. So Adam, let's just dive right in and, and really talk about this idea of finding the root of addiction and why that's so necessary. So let's just jump in. And so the, the first question that comes to mind for me is really when you, you think about addictions, I feel like a lot of people immediately, they, their mind kind of goes to so, some stereotypical ones like, you know, alcohol, drugs, those are obviously addictions and those are, those are issues uh, for a lot of us. Um, but is it broader than that? And, you know, help us understand, you know, addiction and, and, and kind of how broad it is and what it, what it entails a little bit. Yeah, sure. I think uh, when I think about addiction, I think about, and most things, when someone says, what is this thing? Uh, there's generally like two definitions that I kind of go to. And one of them would be kind of like more of the, everyone kind of agrees this is the def- definition. Um, so clinically speaking, there would be um, aspects of the addiction definition that would suggest that there's uh, a compulsory element to it. There's um, some repetitive behaviors that eventually become damaging to the person and or others. Um, so there's that kind of thing you can search online and you can find a Wikipedia definition. The other definition that I really enjoy using, um, as a therapist and trying to understand the people that I'm talking to would be what I would term a functional definition. And this would be the definition that you operate from on a daily basis. So if someone were to ask you, what is addiction? Like you just did to me, I might be able to sprout off a few of those clinical symptomology type answers. But if you ask me instead, what is addiction to you, Adam? That's a slightly different question usually when I phrase that to someone. So functionally, I would say the best way to kind of understand addiction uh, would be in terms of your relationship with things and people and understanding what those relationships do for you in terms of feeling connection, feeling belonging and, and meaning and purpose and how you can utilize yourself within that relationship So when I think of that type of a functional definition, it does broaden it quite a bit. It does move past alcohol and drugs and it moves into what is my relationship with this person even? Is this relationship an addictive relationship because I feel drawn compulsively to it? Am I losing some of who I am in it, too much of who I am in it? What's my role? And and other things can kind of get confusing. So then we find um, that, yes, it broadens quite a bit. Some other types of addictions that people might talk about would be more of what is termed process addictions rather than chemical addictions. The process addictions are the compulsory means that we have relationships with um, like behaviors, certain behavioral patterns that could range from things like eating disorders, um, pornography, uh, even relationships, the types of relationships that we're in words come to my mind like codependency or I'm in a toxic relationship 
those are other ways that people can sometimes commonly talk about addiction. So it is pretty broad. Yeah. Yeah. So as you described it, I like that definition that you gave about looking at the social interactions that I have with other people, especially family and things of that nature. It, it really does expand this uh, concept of addiction. It, it, it could be, as you stated, not just uh, a drug or substance abuse, but um, which would include alcohol um, as well as illegal substances. But it could also be things, as you mentioned, like pornography or I think about social media. Um, you know, so I don't really know, Adam, you know, how do we, do we address that here? How do we look at that? I mean, you go to dinner so many times, you go out to eat and you'll see a man and a woman sitting across the table and they never uh, look up from their phone other than to order their meal or to eat their meal. And so there's two strangers almost that are living together um, in total silence with regards. So that certainly falls within that definition, but probably most of our viewers are thinking more about um, alcohol, things of that nature. And so is there a line of, um, differentiation that you would look at to say, okay, um, this person comes home at the end of the day, uh, and they take a drink to cut an edge, to cut the edge off. Is that different from alcoholism? Where, how do you, Mm -hmm. not just with regard to alcohol, but all substances and issues, how do you, how do you look at that? How do you know you're addicted? Good. Yeah. So I, I would look into, um, what, what role is this substance or this behavior? If it's social media scrolling endlessly scrolling. And then, like you said, I think I really like the, how you described it as two strangers, um, becoming a stranger can happen whenever you, um, allow, whether it's social media, whether it's alcohol, whether it's pills, whatever it may be, you allow that thing to live for you. To, to an extent. So what happens is you're engaging in a relationship with that thing over a person, right? Mm. And when you start to engage with a thing, there's a certain feedback that you're not getting from a thing. There's not really a back and forth. It feels like that, especially with social media. And that's why I think that one's probably flies under the radar a lot more than it should, which also, if something flies under the radar, it's probably going to be some of the most intense things that can happen in terms of addiction. Uh, so I, I guess I would say, you know, you come home, you, you take a drink of alcohol, it takes the edge off, and then you're re-engaging with, you know, your spouse or your, your kids or your friends. Uh, I don't see that as quite a cause for alarm so much as if you come home and you feel that without that drink at all, you, it would be completely impossible um, or altogether too difficult for you to connect with other people. So there's kind of, you're giving whatever that substance is, um, your, your identity is tied to that thing in a way. So alcohol is how I talk with other people. Alcohol is how I make it to work every day. Alcohol is how I do this. Um, so if it's too much of an interrupting phrase within your, your narrative, your sentence, and eventually it gets bad enough that, um, you're not really an active participant in your own life. And when you get to that point, that's the scariest, most difficult point I'd say for an addict. And then oftentimes for those that love the person who comes to that place, um, they're lost. They don't know who they are. They're not really, sometimes it's so overwhelming. They're not even concerned about climbing out of wherever they are. So you just, and, and that's, that's part of the danger with addiction and things like that. It takes over your inputs into your life. It takes you out of the social risk of life, which also takes you out of the social benefits of life. So you have to accept that there's going to be the risk 
if you're going to receive the benefit. And substances or social media, they act as distractions from our ability to learn how to live with what real is. That's so interesting, just the how it impacts our relationships. You know, I mean, my mind goes to a couple things. I mean, I think about, you know, back to alcoholism, how it, in a sense, it kind of transforms your, your normal personality into a little something different. Mm -hmm. um, And, you know, even if you're with people, even if let's say you're drinking, it's not an isolation, but what starts to take the edge off and you drink a little more, maybe in your mind, you thought, Hey, we had a great evening. Hey, you know, I, w- I was with my friends, I was with my family, That's whatever, right. but they had a totally different perspective of it because there were things that you said, or there's a way you acted that they would say, that's not really the person that's not my friend or that's not the person I love and like to be around. It changed you. And yet you didn't even see it. So in a sense, you thought, Hey, I was with people. This was mm-hmm. great. And yet it had an impact and it affected still negatively that relationship with others. And there's a second danger in what you were talking about too, which is after the fact, if you did in fact have a good time or other people even did have a good time, uh, what are you attributing that good time to? Did we have a good time because I'm a valuable person and I offered something valuable to people or did I have a good time because alcohol was present and it allowed me to have a good time? See, and that's the subtle way how you kind of get scooted out of your own life you no longer are accepting kind of the full responsibility or, or you're not accountable for, for those important aspects of connecting with other people. So you can start explaining that away and, and that's damaging too um, for everyone present. No, that's really good. And you know, you kind of alluded to also the escapism mm-hmm. a little bit, right? I mean, again, I think about social, you know, social kind of settings where, you know, before they did have something like social media or a phone that you could keep with you, the mm. poor little child had to kind of endure this time with, uh, <laughs> you know, older people and grandparents and all that. And there was nothing to escape to. But now it's almost like we have the ability to create these types of addictions and escapes from those relationships at an early age. Now it's like I can sit here and scroll through my phone while, you know, I'm in this boring setting with all my mixed you know, ages of relatives. I can kind of still entertain myself and yet you're disengaged from relationships too. That's right. You're skipping over, you're skipping over some of the, the uncomfortable or or slightly socially difficult aspects of life. And then you kind of look back and you're missing out on some things too. You know, Adam, when you were answering uh, Brian's question, it really made me uh, think of the subject of identity. Um, And so another one that we could throw in here to me would be um, uh, a workaholic and so I think about, you know, in the 1900s, we were early 1900s. And prior to that, we were an agrarian economy before industrialization took place. And so men worked outside all day long. Their sons worked with them uh, in the field uh, to raise so their family could have a sustainable, just sustains themselves. Yeah. And so yet today that that has changed where uh, if the thought process of capitalism or not capitalism, but consumerism, that the harder I work, the more things I get to enjoy and my uh, enjoyment uh, comes in the things that I possess. Uh, they really end up possessing me trying to keep them up. But so, you know, it would seem to me that there would probably be a similar route to all these things, whether uh, whatever the allism that I'm putting myself into, whether it's, illegal substances, alcohol, social media, TV, 
uh, work. Is, is there a route and, and how do we really, how in counseling do you help a person get back to see that, that it, it's not themselves that they're presenting? It's a, a fake self, if you will, uh, by becoming inebriated. Yeah. Uh, wow. So there's, there's a lot of things that I hadn't really considered there. Um, I think, uh, when, when you were talking, what the phrase that I thought about was, um, working to live versus living to work. And there's been kind of like a little bit of that shift. Mm -hmm. The other elements of what you were discussing too, and in the day and age when it was more communal living and it was more kind of like ranching or farming or things like that. And you had family and work were sometimes synonymous, right? And now they're very compartmentalized. Um, and, and the pursuit of like what the purpose of work is, because it's not necessarily to sustain us. We have other farmers now that do that for us. Right. And so now it's kind of pursuing different kind of materialistic or even like entertainment. Um, a lot of the consumerism that happens today is what's fun. What excites me? Not so much the work ethic aspects of it. Um, so how does that play into um, things like addiction? Well, I think some of the core values were probably lost that were, or, or maybe misplaced that would provide a lot of resiliency to, um, you know, keeping us out of maybe the addictive landscape because it was a lot more connection based. Uh, so I'm trying that part kind of, I, I wrap my attention around that part. I think I missed the second part of your yeah. question. So just really, um, I mean, it's fascinating, and I hadn't thought about that before, but as you were talking, that made me think about that. Where do we find our identity? And, and men tend to find their identity in what they do. Mm, but mm. Um, really, what is the oh, – okay. how, how do we help a person get to – what is the root cause? All these probably have some similarity. There's something behind it driving it. Uh, my need to um, uh, medicate myself or to find identity in something else. Is there a root cause that, that, that we really struggle with? You helped me out there. Okay. So, and some of this does relate to, uh, the other days of, of social living and everything like that and, and working hard and understanding that things don't always go your way. And let's solve this out. If we come across a disappointment or an expectation is not met, let's solve this together. Father, son, let's work this out, you know, and, and they would really work at it. So I would say some of the core things, this is a dangerous question to answer, mostly because there are those that may be listening or, or watching this and uh, who, who struggle with addiction for a variety of reasons. I'm going to overly simplify that right now into some concepts that I think are really important to um, addiction and recovery. So when we look into like a root cause or even just a correlation, I would say two things to that. I'd say the human condition um, makes every single person susceptible to addictive behaviors. And the reason why I say that is because um, I, I kind of discovered this as I, I sat down with a lot of people that had a lot of addictions, whether it be process or with substances. And I said, what is, what is a substance and what is a person? Because it seemed to me that a lot of when addiction takes hold, the need for a person goes away. And that's very damaging to us. We need people. We need connection. But that goes away. So what is it that this thing, this substance is offering us that people cannot? So my answer to that kind of came with um, the concept of dependability. Um, drugs especially are synthesized and developed to be consistent and dependable in terms of what they give us. 
if I want to feel good, I take this pill and, and that's registered in my brain. If it's not working enough, I take more. Uh, if I want to forget about difficulties that have happened to me, I take a drink. And maybe the first time I took a drink, it wasn't because I was trying to get rid of difficulties. But maybe I noticed after I took a drink that, hey, I don't, I don't remember things that, that hurt me. Mm, that feels good. So they take that, take that, take that. And every time they take it, it's dependable. It gives them what they think they need. People are not manufactured to be dependable. None of us are. That's dangerous, particularly to certain groups of people. I think there's some people that are probably a little more susceptible to addiction than others because of certain landscapes, environments, conditions. But I would say the undependability of, of humankind, which is a condition all of us share, holds uh, the greatest source of harm and detriment to us and fear, but it also holds one of the greatest things that drugs cannot do for us. And that would be um, if I'm feeling a particular way, anxious, scared, alone, sad, empty, confused, that pill and that drink is not going to notice that from across the room. It doesn't have the ability to do that. People do. And the miracle of the undependability of people is when they show up unannounced to love us. Drugs, substances, um, compulsive behaviors, they do not have that quality. We have great control over the substance. We can, if we want to feel good, so we can choose when they make us feel good. And that feels great. We can control. That's, that, I would say, is one of the, the key addictive concepts to just living. There's so many things I can't control, and those things I can't control often hurt me. But this one thing I can control, man, it does wonders for me, right? So you just get, you're almost not even addicted to the drug at that point. You're addicted to the control that you have. But it's a pretend control because what we need is not control. What we need is someone to notice us from across the room, to follow a feeling that they have inside them. Perhaps others that some people with, with great connection with a higher power, they, they get that feeling and they know what to do with it every time, right? I'm going to go do it. I don't know this person. They look sad. They look kind of lost. They're acting weird. They look weird. But you know what? I want to give them love. So this undependability of humankind sometimes plays out in the fact that people let us down. They disappoint us. And disappointment um, or when people leave us, um, those, we, we kind of, um, we don't put enough emphasis on how painful those things are. Mm-hmm. When we get let down from a person, when attachment is threatened, connection with a person is threatened, I don't know that there's anything actually more threatening than that. Some people might actually choose to die. If they had the choice to die or to lose a connection with a person, some people choose death. And we actually see that in statistics through the word suicide. But if we can connect with people and we can accept that that aspect of humanity, the undependability of people is actually something that we need, then I change my focus then when I'm working with people who have loved ones who are addicted or the addict themselves. And, um, you know, I challenge them to, to accept and, and work on the better parts of their humanity. Yes, they're undependable, but let's learn how to manage disappointment better. Because I think that's a core thing. If we could learn how to manage disappointment or when expectations go unmet, I'd say that would take out 
probably the largest chunk of what drives addiction. Wow. Wow. A lot of stuff. There There is, man. My mind is blown. I I mean, I love, this is very profound. And I mean, there's so much packed into that, you know, and I I think about, I mean, when you put it that way, it, it truly, I mean, the root of it is something about our humanity. You know, there's definitely this common thread. Number one, that we are all created for relationship and attachment, you know, and doing some basic study in that, you know, we're adoptive parents and we talk about, you know, some of the things you need to be prepared for is, you know, we adopted a child at age three. So there's, there was attachment that was so critical for them that mm-hmm. didn't really happen in the yeah. first part of their life. And so there are challenges that come with that. Um, you know, and, and I think about, you know, again, it's such a profound thing about the dependability, getting that, that thing that, you know, that you get every time from that substance versus the undependability of that relationship. And yet, it's through working through and the coping and, and having some difficult conversations and hanging in there with relationships that is the way we grow as people. You know, I think so many times if our coping is going to a substance or bouncing around from different relationships, we miss out on that, that real growth that we're meant for as a, as a person. We're, we're missing out on that growth. Right. Because uh, we're, just, we're just continuing to kind of um, cope and medicate ourselves in unhealthy ways. And we're never really growing right. people. Um, so just so much, so much profound stuff. And it kind of leads in a little bit, Adam, too, to there's this general sense that, you know, to be human is to be susceptible to this temptation to addiction. But have you found, and as you work with people that are there certain people that seem to be more predisposed to addictive behaviors, whether that's genetically or whether that's just through circumstances they've been through. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, the science behind it would suggest that there's a lot of genetic predisposition, genetic predisposition. We don't want to confuse that to mean like uh, it's a determinant. So, and many of the things that I'm going to talk about are not determinants. So if I say like, Hey, this usually, you know, I would say this is common amongst people who experience addiction is probably the better way that I would phrase it. That way we don't have people out there thinking uh, or believing that, hey, because I had childhood trauma, I am going to be an addict. Like that is how things happen. When when something bad happens when I was six, um, the natural response for my body to do, and I should let it do that, is addiction. That's not the case. There's a lot of people that experience some of the things I'm going to talk about Um that don't end up falling, you know, folly to addiction per se. Um, they have great difficulty, um, managing a lot of different things in their life, but maybe that's not their particular difficulty there. So I would say genetic predisposition. Yes. That means, you know, you've got parents, grandparents, um, really far back that the, the genetic makeup of their body, I guess I'll just say this inputs matter. What we put into our body, whether it be actual substances or whether it be behaviors or things that we engage in, it's kind of coded down on a very small micro level in our bodies. Um, just like if I were to say my, if my career was a construction worker, I would be a lot stronger than maybe someone that doesn't do a lot of physical work. And if generations of my family were construction workers, there'd be some kind of code within us that would say, grow muscle. You're going to need it. Um, so like across generations, there's kind of like this genetic tie and, and, and through offspring and everything like that. So that same type thing can happen when it comes to other, um, maybe destructive habits, um, 
with like alcohol, substance drinking, or manipulating your chemistry with whatever it is you're putting into your body. Uh, so that's one area um, that makes it maybe a little bit harder to avoid addictive pulls. Uh, the other areas that I would say would be like what I mentioned earlier. If if your family had a particular time or a difficult time managing how um, they handle disappointment, is disappointment even talked about in your house? How 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 do your your parents deal with disappointment when you do something that they ask you not to do and you end up doing it? What is their response? Um, how is that managed? And a lot of the the ways in which you manage disappointment are is teaching you know your kid and then eventually this adult how they're going to manage or not manage um, disappointment or unexpected events. Uh, trauma would be another um, sort of thing, really. And when I say trauma, trauma would be an event that's not expected happening. Um, the root of just about anything we would consider traumatic. Uh, experiencing the loss of a loved one or a terrifying, um, a terrifying war experience or other things like that. These are things that you did not expect to be a part of your story. Ultimately, that's what it, it kind of graduates down into. Those types of things require of us to accept certain parts of humanity. And we can either accept those or live in denial. And I would say those who live in denial long enough or develop certain reasons why they think this happened to them, that I think is where it kind of kind of steers off in a different direction. When trauma occurs, like with, with uh, the pandemic, and I wish it were just the pandemic that happened. That was an awful thing. I'm not saying that was a weird thing to say, I guess. But there were so many other awful things that were brought to the surface during that. And a lot of that's because of that's how trauma works. When an upsetting thing happens, it stirs up the sediment and all kinds of other memories of pain shoot up. And that's what we saw happen during the pandemic. So once that started happening, that can sometimes override people's ability to cope or it brings them right in front of this thing that they've been trying to avoid facing for a long time, which is what do I now have to accept about humanity, about my life, about the future, about the present? And if you don't want to have any of those types of conversations or find solutions or answers, or you know what the answer is, but you hate that answer, you're going to want to ingest something or take part in some kind of behavior that's going to keep you from acknowledging or accepting or confronting that. So I'd say, you know, there's some, some things that can lead one person more, uh, lean them more susceptible to the pull of addiction, but I wouldn't say that it's a direct cause um, relationship because people are very resilient. Um, I've met people that have never learned what emotions were, how to label them, what to do with any of them. And then miraculously through conversation and through me modeling different things, like I'm feeling this and I'm open with them about what I'm feeling in the room, even if it's something they don't want to hear or that I think could be damaging to our relationship. It's necessary for me to help them understand that. And then we kind of grow we do the growing up that they needed to do when they were a kid, but we do it while they're an adult. So, I mean, there's ways to kind of be resilient and to gain back maybe some of the limitations that you have because of your environment or genetic predisposition, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, I, just one little thing to add to that. I think just, just in hearing what you're sharing, I think that, um, you know, if you are someone who has been through that type of trauma, maybe it's something from your childhood or whatever. I think it, 
I've seen the value, you know, of, of the role of counseling. You know, that's one of my passions for wanting to do this, wanted to participate in this, in this video podcast is that it gives you, you, we need a good healthy outlet to process things with another person who's listening to us, who's helping us to work through that kind of thing. I think that to me is one part of kind of breaking out of maybe that has been your coping mechanism because of trauma or something you've been through. I think a healthy, regular counseling kind of uh, environment can really be helpful in processing through that um, support groups, those kind of things. I think these things really do matter. They, they allow you with other people to find deeper and better uh, new ways to cope in healthy ways versus what you had created a habit of doing. Yeah, I think that's, it's really hard too for some people, because as I said earlier, human beings, all of us um, are, are so able to damage other people. So if somebody, if part of their trauma has to do with the fact that somebody did something to them, it's going to be so hard for them to come sit in front of another person like me and say like, Hey, I know what people are capable of, but I'm just going to have to trust that you're going to be not one of those people and that you'll help me. Yeah. So I'm always, that's why I'm always thrilled when someone makes it in my door and I sit there and I'm like, you've already done something courageous likely. So, you know, as I listen to the two of y'all talk, I just think about how, um, we all need Brian's and Adams in our life uh, to help us process through things and maybe turn the switch on. And I would think that, you know, Brian, you described it, Adam, in your, in your role, that's got to be one of the things that draws you to counseling. But, um, you know, I think of the great commandment that we are to love others as we love ourselves. And so in thinking about that, uh, I may not be as equipped uh, to help somebody as Brian or Adam, but I'm in a relationship with them and, and that gives me um, credibility in their lives. So how do we as individuals, if there's somebody in our life that we love, that we're in a relationship with, um, are there do's and don'ts and how we would try to go about helping them navigate uh, this addiction, whatever it may be uh, in their life? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So um, I guess the best word of advice I could give is, uh, don't worry so much about the comparative value of somebody's training. Um, because above anything else, what I see that actually works in the room, even with my training or things like that, what's, what's going to be the actual transformative factor, um, for another person that I'm in connection with is love. And nobody needs training for that. No one love them. Okay. Now here's, here's maybe some of the, uh, like exception to the rule type talk. There's this terminology in addiction recovery. Um, one of the terms is enabler and, and everyone's like, please don't let me be the enabler. I don't want to be the enabler or I don't want to enable someone in their addiction. And then they kind of like close down, they get really scared and they're like, I don't want to make this worse, obviously. And the hard thing about that term enabler is that Typically what an enabler is, is someone that loves somebody else a great deal. And they go and they try and help this person. But when, what ends up happening with the enabler is that they go in and they do something for that person. They take over the responsibilities of that person because they don't trust that person to take care of themselves. Because they've demonstrated, maybe for years or decades even, that they can't manage their own life. So we go in there and we start managing their life. Because we love them and we want them to have a good life. So we start living for them. But what happens is you're doing what the drug does. 
you're living for a person. We're not supposed to do that. If we love somebody, we want to help them live for themselves. And that gets a little wishy-washy in certain scenarios, in particular when you're a parent and you have a kid that's addicted or something like that. Those roles get so confusing. So I would urge anyone watching or listening that they just uh, be patient and compassionate with yourself. You may turn out that you are an enabler, but don't take that as such a defeat because what that means is that you love somebody a great deal. Um, But so in helping people understand what you can do to help someone, if you feel that they have an addiction or things like that, um, there's, there are maybe some do's and don'ts. I would say um, one of the things we want to steer away from a don't uh, would be not to give, give a man or a woman a fish, Um, teach them how to fish, work alongside them with them, encourage them, but try not to problem solve for them. So I want to switch the do for to a do with. Do with a person, don't do for a person. Because what ends up happening is when you do something for someone else, what you're doing is you're actually robbing them of the success of their effort. You're, it's in, on one side of this, it could almost be uh, contrived as a, a selfish behavior because you're living for them so that you can feel the success of them living well. But you don't need that. You can do that for your own life and you should focus on that for yourself. But for them, we got to let them know, Hey, you've got a problem right here. Do you think this is a problem? Someone deep in the throes of addiction say, no, it's not a problem at all. I love my life. This feels great. And then that's where we kind of throw in terms like rock bottom is eventually there's an awareness that happens where the people that say, I see this as a problem. If you see it as a problem, don't stay with the problem. And that's the hard line to draw because what's going to, one of the only things when someone's really deep into addiction is that when they lose those meaningful relationships, they have to know that their, their actions, their behaviors have consequences that are very vital to their survival. So the hardest thing that I've had to talk with people about parents included is, and it's not like you just, you can't just leave your kid. I'm not talking about just dropping them off somewhere. In some instances, when they're, when they're still adults living at home, there is an element to that. You might have to drop them off. Uh, and, and let them learn how to manage their life. But you're not doing this as a punishment, you see. You're doing this and you have to describe this to them and explain it and explain it and explain it. Um, I want you to feel the successes of your life. And the only way I can do that is if I get out of the way of the decision and the effort process. This is sad for me. I don't want to leave you alone, but you're going to have to figure this out. And I mean, biblically, that takes me back to a really important element when I think about um Jesus Christ, I think about the father. I think about how he was crying out on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? Where are you? And to a certain extent, I can almost see the father sitting there saying the same thing that I'm just saying right now, which is, I'm not doing this as a punishment, son. Um, But for you to gain the glory that you're going to gain, you have to enact this. You have to engage in life, even though it's hard and it hurts. And there's mean people. There's undependability. There's unexpected events. But you will triumph this. I know you will. You were sent here to do it. You will do it. I know you can. Right? And then, and then you let them do it. And then eventually that story turns out really well for everybody, for us. But with each person, it's, it's got a similar ending um, that's, that's possible. 
When you talked about the dropping off, I've got two different friends in Atlanta who were in Atlanta for 20 years who actually did that. Um, one of them is an attorney and a whole ministry has uh, come to play in his life. And it, uh, the dropping off wasn't they just went and put them on the street, but they engaged uh, a ministry that brought them in, uh, took them out of the home environment. Um, and the other one's still going through the process, but seemingly it's having great success. So just want our listeners to know that okay. there are resources out there uh, that do that very thing. Um, and it's helpful to seek that can be helpful to seek those out. Great. Absolutely. Now, what, you know, this is the kind of conversation that I feel like we could just keep digging into for way longer than this. Um, it's such an important conversation it, I think, really relates to you to be human. It, you're going to there's a connection to this. So so appreciative. And, and Adam, if people if this is pricked some interest, um, if people wanted to learn more, if they wanted to connect with you, what would be the best way for them to do that? Uh, yeah. So there's there's going to be really three ways to do that. Um, there's going to be my website, which is on the men counseling um, dot com and. Uh, through there, you can, I've got some blogs that I've written on there, just some brief information for you to get to know me. Um, and then you can also schedule from my website. Uh, the other way to do it would be to just give me a call. Um, it's 832-246-8806. Um, I'm often going to be in session with a client. So uh, I'll get back to you as soon as I can. But the quickest way to get a hold of me is probably going to be through email. And uh, that's just it on the men counseling at Gmail. Um, but yeah, one of those three ways is fine. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we want to thank you for joining us today on this episode of Equip and want to remind you that Equip Online is a partnership between Stonebridge Church and Mosaics of Mercy. Mosaics of Mercy is a really great nonprofit here in our area, and their heart is just to make available the best mental health resources possible for people. That includes different counselors, support groups, and all kinds of great stuff. And if you'd like to continue to learn more, uh, we'd encourage you to go to our website, equiponlinepodcast.com. And there's some really great information past episodes for you to check out. Well, God bless you and our desire is that you'd walk in the fullness of life that you've been created for. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. We are really passionate about mental health. If you found this episode helpful or beneficial in any way, we would love for you to hit that like button, subscribe to our channel, and ding the notification bell so that you never miss another episode. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. See you next time.